0: Welcome to Fintech Insider. We've now been downloaded in 140 countries and are top of the charts in iTunes in the business category again. So thanks for listening. But we do really appreciate those reviews on iTunes and any platform you can. So bring those reviews. We love them. I'm Simon Taylor, and I'm joined by some 11FS colleagues, uh, Chris Skinner. Chris, say hello. Hello. And Aiden Davies, who you heard way back on our fourth ever episode. In, say hello. Hello, Simon. And of course, we brought back the best guest host ever for any show in the world. And I don't believe in hyperbole. This is Gela Boskovic, the founder of FemTech Global. Gela, how are you?
1: Simon, you do hyperbole so beautifully. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's what we're all about. It's 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 not Fintech Insider. It's Fintech Hyperbole. That's what that's what this week's theme is. David Breer and Jason Bates are sipping coffee in Vienna, according to my show notes. I think they're doing something uh, deep and dark and possibly dangerous. I don't know what those two get up to but all by themselves. But anyway... It means nothing to me. <laughs> oh, somebody had to make that joke, didn't they? Uh, today we're talking all about APIs, and we've got some great guests joining us. Uh, so we have Leslie-Ann Vaughan, the creator of MPESA and the director of Mila Consulting. Leslie. Hello good to have you with us uh and we have david i'm not going to try and say your last name the vp of vertical solutions at apogee david uh hello and please say your last name
2: it's anjeic and uh hello from sunny california
0: david thank you so much for for being with us here today uh okay so let's get on with the news Alrighty, Um, so the first story up uh, is from FinExtra. This is the US regulator citing FinTech as a risk. To the banking system look at us being so risky and there's a full report so Geller uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to look at this one or you had any thoughts on this subject are you a walking talking risk to the banking system
1: <laughs> I personally always have been a high risk to any system but in terms of that lengthy report it's only 30 pages with a few graphs and charts so if somebody did want to breeze through it and over over lunch hour not a problem Um, But what was interesting is the highlights from the report are really about the business model changes and growing revenue for the banking system. Um, Some of the risk assessment was around how do banks adopt innovative products and services and processes in response to what the end customer is really demanding now in in their financial services experience. Um, But it was also about the risk of competition. And that comes in with having fintech as an alternative provider of services. Uh, when we look at, you know, your wire transfers or your money wallet or your investment advice, all of those different things apparently come with a, with a risk association. Uh, the OCC, the, the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency, is actually quite interested in making sure that that seamless um, integration of FinTech into the U.S. banking system happens, but the risk does come with it. And they've also kind of looked at the underwriting uh, practices to increase loan volume. And that is one of the things that FinTech does, especially the alternative lending platforms. So how do you minimize and mitigate risk when you've got an alternative uh, business model? And that's part of where FinTech is really, I hate the word disrupting, but where they're challenging the traditional models. So operational risk, um, that's always a a challenge, and especially with cybersecurity. And Chris, you and I were chatting last, or just before Christmas, about top trends. And even though I mentioned cybersecurity is not the sexiest trend for 2017, it actually is critically important, especially with the OCC's report. So cybersecurity uh, still remains a, a really rich topic that has to be explored and actually looking for really rich solutions. But that lends to the risk appetite or lack of risk appetite for the OCC.
3: It's also worth understanding, I guess that the OCC is encouraging fintech startups and that, um, At the moment, they've got a lot of fragmented regulation in the state sets, federal and state levels, which means it's too difficult to launch a new digital bank. There isn't a new digital bank in America, full stop. There isn't one. Uh, Mm -hmm. But the OCC at the end of last year offered a fintech banking charter to startups to enable new fintech companies and also existing ones like Stripe, for example, to move into full bank services nationwide. So rather than being um, a threat, they see this as an opportunity to change the banking system, I think. Um, so there's a mixture of different activities going on there.
4: There also and seems to be a bit of a fight going on. So uh, I think Banking Technology reported that there was two Democratic senators who've spoken out against the OCC uh, creating this charter. Um,
1: Durbin actually was one of them, which is an interesting mix, right? I mean, when you think of the Durban Amendment, he actually government. voiced his concerns about it, but there is because of the fragmented nature in the US and because of the lack of regulatory involvement at a community slash industry level like this, it's new. It's definitely new territory for them to explore. And the whole point is to challenge the traditional model, but how do you do that in a, in a way that, that allows for that risk to be mitigated? And I think we're gonna be hearing a lot more from the OCC and in association with that, the, the various local government and, and federal government um, discussions around how to, how to crack open the industry and allow for technology to really replace an antiquated business model.
2: Yeah. This is David. I I find this kind of um, interesting in some ways because it's, it's kind of like your, your crusty uncle or your frumpy auntie telling you that you need to up your style game or you won't get any dates. I mean, you know, to to a certain extent, the regulator is coming in and, and telling these banks, Hey, look, you know, you guys better get with the program because because this is you know there's some strategic business risk for you uh, in digital, which would probably be the the last place I would expect to get uh, warning and advice uh, would be from a from a regulator. W- when you actually read read the report, though, you know anybody who kind of even tangentially follows this space, um, you know, will realize that there's not a lot of detail, right? They basically just point in the general direction of digital and, and and fintech and say hey look there's some some risk there but you know as a as a bank executive you know that would have to give me pause to say you know wh- what am I missing you know what you know hear all this noise and now you know even the regulators are telling us hey there's danger over in this corner you know you, you'd really have to start thinking about it twice as
3: hard I think what's also interesting here David is that um, with Donald Trump, president-elect, coming into office just in a few weeks. You know, he surrounded himself with Goldman Sachs bankers and billionaires and millionaires and, you know, a fundamental disruption to the banking system that the OCC encourages through technology I don't really see happening under a Trump administration.
2: I actually I actually disagree. I actually think it would almost uh, be encouraged in some ways. I mean, I realize yeah. he's got a bunch of bankers that's surrounding him, but, you know, the, the theme has very much been, uh, you know, pro pro-business, less regulation, open things up. Uh, you know, that, you know, with the exception of some of his comments on trade, <laughs> you know, so I, I would not be surprised if they said, hey, yeah, go fight it out.
0: What do you think of Keith Dodd-Frank I... because he said that he's going to rip it up?
2: Yeah.
0: So if it's deregulation, though, um, and deregulation is the theme, then it could also be deregulation of lobbying. And the banks have been pretty effective at lobbying in the US. Um, indeed, that's part of the reason why creating a new bank is – so incredibly hard in the US is because of, of the high barrier, not not just um, set through through some of the lobbying, but then also the fact that regulation is state by state and and varies so incredibly wildly. But it is something that seems to be happening consistently from a lot of regulators. It's this weird schizophrenic world we find ourselves in where, as you say, David, regulators are pushing banks to get better at digital and it feels like, you know, banks like to dress themselves up in being amazing at digital. But actually, when you scratch a little bit beneath the app, a little bit beneath, you know, we have an app, underneath that, there are these systems that have been there for 20, 30 years and need like wholesale rethinks or need at least some modern APIs or some modern uh, middleware to try and make sense of of what's going on underneath there. And you know, this is a a great subject and we could probably talk on and on about it, but we've we've got um, six other more stories to get to or at least five more stories. So I'm going to move on to the next one. And whilst I've grabbed the mic, I might as well own it a little bit. So here's one that um, comes from IB Times and it talks a little bit about the DTCC creating a credit derivatives blockchain with Axony, IBM, and R3, which is just a lot of vowels and a lot of letters. But let's just try and unpack that headline a little bit. The Depository Trade Clearing Corporation, which clears something like $1.6 quadrillion per annum, which is many times the world's GDP, which is just a phenomenal number. But then consider that these are 30-year contracts. So actually, it's not moving the money, it's moving the potential money. Anyway, is creating a credit derivatives blockchain. So credit derivatives, special type of contract moved around in financial markets, working with a startup called Axoni, a company you might have heard of called IBM, and the consortium of over 70 banks are three. Now, what's interesting to me about this is it proves a macro trend that I've been talking about for about three or four years now, which was 2017 will be the year this stuff becomes real. And what the DTC are talking about is really upgrading their trade information warehouse. So, the Trade Information Warehouse is this centralized entity that provides a registry of all trades that happen, pretty much most of the trades in the United States. And this was really crucial in the global financial crisis because regulators were asking, you know, what is the exposure between banks? Is the world going to implode? You know, do banks have 200 billion, 200 trillion? What's the exposure between banks? Oh, no, we don't know. And the DTCC said, no, it's not 200 billion, it's six. And the the regulator went no no it must be more it must be one and the DTCC went no no it's six that's that's what the exposure is and if you go back and look at the reports it was actually six so this is a remarkably important piece it's it's almost at the very heart of, of financial markets but there's a problem it's highly expensive this centralised entity is very very expensive to run so the CEO of Axoni talks about that golden record um, is kind of Something that this one organization owns and nobody else can see. So being able to synchronize against that golden record and have exactly the same data as that golden record is hugely beneficial to financial markets. What I often compare this to is if you imagine there are a couple of hundred banks in the world they're actually talking to each other in Chinese whispers. In other words, one bank sends a message and another bank receives the message. And by the time you get to the fifth bank, they don't know what was actually said at the first bank. It changes subtly as the message moves throughout the financial system. And there's this one central place where you have the message, but actually it's really, really expensive. So what if we had a system that could keep all of those messages and all of those records for trades all in sync? wouldn't that be something that was really important and really required? And that's exactly what they're trying to build here. The observation I want to give before I throw this open to the call is that what's really interesting to me is you've got a startup You've got a big major vendor and a consortium of banks all kind of playing nice on this to me. And it feels like a weird stage play, like some weird kind of awkward romance going on. Like there's there's three in a bed sort of thing. It's it's a little bit odd. Um, but let's let's see what happens with this one, because I think the, the DTCC are taking a, a real lead here, and, and, and credit to them. Um, any thoughts from anybody around the call? Can you
3: just clarify something, Simon, about Axony and the Hyperledger, and that this is all based on Hyperledger, isn't it?
0: No, it's actually based on AxeCore. So AxCore is um, code that has been uh, developed by Axoni themselves. Uh, so this is proprietary code that the startup has built. And IBM are providing project management and expertise and integration into the banks and generally their knowledge of how all of the existing systems work in the DTCC. So IBM are doing a lot of the heavy lifting, but some of the core components are actually built by Axoni now. I don't know for certain if some Hyperledger pieces will be um, included. That score will be submitted to
3: the Hyperledger next year. So I'm guessing it is going to be on the Hyperledger therefore.
0: Indeed, but it's probably worth for the listeners explaining what that means. So Hyperledger is like a big bucket. right? So you've got this open source foundation, and in that bucket you can drop a whole lot of code bases. It's like dropping different car engines into into your car. You can pick the red one, the blue one, the green one. And right now, IBM built, let's pick the blue one, and Axe Core has the green one. That green one isn't in the bucket yet, but actually they're already using it. So yeah, it it will sit inside Hyperledger, but it doesn't yet. So when people say, are you using Hyperledger? They're typically asking me, are you using the blue one that IBM built? And, and actually, in this case, no, they're not. They're using something that might sit in the bucket that IBM built that IBM didn't build if that makes sense.
1: So Simon, quick question on the nature of of you know distributed ledger being more open source? Is the proprietary nature actually contributing to the, the high cost for this and the the price tag? From
0: XM? Possibly. I mean, I think there's there's, there's a challenge always, right? Um, Do you engineer something that's highly bespoke and solves a very specific complex problem? And can you open source that given how complex and bespoke it is? Like if you've got banks and you're integrating so deep into their systems then can that really ever be open source? Well, bits of it could be, but actually how that integrates all the way or some of the specifics that does is, is very, very difficult. So the, the high cost at the moment is the fact that um, what's happening is you've got this one centralized system that everybody has to talk to, and then they're all trying to talk to each other and talk through that centralized system. Whereas in the future state, like getting access to that system would be faster, cheaper, and they could also talk to each other peer-to-peer. It's like kind of if we all had to send messages via Chris in order to talk to each other, but Chris is in Singapore, right? Whereas here on the Google Hangout, we can all talk to each other peer-to-peer. But if we all had to send messages via Chris, you know, it could take forever because he might have sound problems, for example. But I think you should, in future, send all your messages through me. That that works for me.
1: <laughs> I'm worried about your translating skills, Chris. <laughs> the subtlety of your saying. <laughs>
0: exactly. going <laughs> <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> Whilst we're with you, Chris, um, there's there's a story here in the FT about banks risk missing the 29 ring fence deadline. What is a ring fence deadline?
3: Well, basically, there was a huge investigation into the issues within the banking sector after the global financial crisis called the Vickers Report after Martin Vickers, who ran the commission investigation. And at the end of that, they concluded that the risk to the person on the high street of losing their access to a cash machine is caused by casino capitalism in the investment markets. So as a result, rather than saying that banks had to completely shut down investment banking, they said, You have to run your investment banking operations as a completely separate ring fenced operation that will have no impact on your commercial and retail bank operations should there be issues in the future. And to do that, all the systems or the structure has to be separated, effectively making it um, a subsidiary holding company. So you have a retail commercial bank that's one part of the organization and completely separate with its own capital structure and management team, the investment operations. And that's a massive ask for the banks to create that structure. Um, It's for the bigger banks, those with £25 billion worth of deposits or more. Um, And what they actually have to do is by January 2019, separate themselves and to do that the treasury has estimated it will cost them about three billion pounds each to set this up with annual running costs of four billion pounds a year and you can see why it's so difficult because Mm it takes a royal bank of scotland who couldn't even separate part of their own bank to sell it off as a division of williams and glynn the same with Lloyd's when they separated into TSB. TSB's operations run on Lloyd's systems because it's too difficult to separate all the technology out. And Banco Santander is actually saying, this is actually too much to ask for us because we're a Spanish bank. This is a British ring fencing rule. So we'll just um, separate our British retail operations and put all of the rest of the operations back into Spain so that we can uh, deal with the Brexit issues as they come up. So it's pretty complicated. And at the end of the day, it doesn't solve the issue anyway, because um, most of the banks are implode in the financial crisis were retail banks like Northern Rock and Bradford and Bingley that had no investment banking operations. So I kind of see the whole thing as a bit of a mess, to be honest, and I still don't think it's going to solve the issue that they're trying to address. <laughs> so Chris, quick
1: yeah, I actually have a question. Chris, what do you think about the approach of just saying we'll, we'll set up a brand new and here's the opportunity to be a truly digital bank, but set up brand new operations that that are fundamentally separate from investment? Isn't that an opportunity for a bank to really jump into the digital space and the right way building it from ground up instead of trying to re-engineer and reorganize their back system operations to account for ring fencing?
3: Uh, You would like to think so, Gayla, but um, that's a bit of a utopian vision when you have an existing, um, you know, billions of deposits and millions of customers in the existing branch-based operations. And they're actually saying you've got to separate those branch-based operations from any of your investment bank activities or um, capital market activities. And that's really breaking up the existing structure. And none of the banks have taken that as an opportunity to reimagine the bank. They're just doing it as, oh, we've got to. How do we do it? Do, you think, do we think that line is going to be completely missed? Do we think it's
4: going to just become arbitrary? What happens if all the banks just say, this is too hard, we can't do it, Brexit's happening, low interest rates, et cetera, et cetera?
3: Well, the thing about regulators, and you see this all the time, and the you know, UK is no exception. But I was just asked to write something about the European landscape for banking outlook in 2017, and obviously you've got the systemically dangerous Deutsche Bank. You know, how the hell could Deutsche Bank separate all its investment investment operations from its retail and commercial banking operations? Um, But equally, you take a rule like um, the single supervisory mechanism in Europe that came into force in 1st of January 2016 that says no nation state in Europe can bail out their bank. And Italy just goes and bails out Montepasci di Siena because they couldn't find an investor in it. You know, I mean, you just ignore the rules. The rules don't matter. You try and follow them. And at the end of the day, if you don't, what's the punishment? I've never seen any bank punished.
0: Well there were some pretty big fines for a little while um the the big fines tended to happen though where where somebody was breaking an existing rule, and it, typically they were around kyc whereas it's a little bit different when there's a new rule coming in. those deadlines seem to slide to the right pretty consistently um you know the, the deadlines drop you see, you've seen that with payment services directive and SEPA.
3: but even if you flout the rules uh in, in, in flagrante, so to speak, um, as you know, we saw with UBS in the States with uh, tax dodging and um, f- you know, potential money laundering and fraud and HSBC. What you end up with is just how much can we find these guys without the bank going b- um, bust? Oh, eight billion pounds, that will do. You know, it, it's basically it, the system is set up to protect the system. Oh, sorry, I'm going off on that.
0: <laughs> well to, to prevent the going off on one let's let's ask aiden to tell us about the next story so aiden the story here on mashable which is a fun word to say um about fifty-six thousand petrol pumps in india stop accepting credit and debit cards apparently the citizens are miffed <laughs> so this is a continuing fallout
4: from the uh, demonetization in india so and andrew modi's uh Decision to remove uh, 100 and uh, sorry 500 and 1,000 rupee notes from circulation, uh, and it's I'm fascinated by this personally. It's it's you know the biggest kind of financial services experiment I can remember in my lifetime, uh, probably you know the crash, withstanding. Yeah. So what's happened is that um, there was a a discount applied if you bought petrol uh, using plastic cards and that window which was 50 days uh, finished on the 9th of January. So the bank said great and they uh, levied a 1% transaction fee on top of card payments for petrol pumps. The union that runs those petrol pumps said "Uh, no we can't afford that, Uh, our, our, our margins are already razor thin so we will not accept plastic card payments. So at a time when cash is running uh, pretty low in India, as the new notes are still not out in circulation in rate yet. We've got a situation where people can't buy fuel for their cars. Um, now, there has been a, a reprieve following some, I imagine, highly flammable talks. Sorry. Uh, <laughs> oh. And um, they've said that they will accept plastic cards until the 13th of January. ICI C I Bank, one of the biggest banks in India, have actually said that they will drop the uh, the one percent charge as well. So it's it's going to be interesting to see that how this one plays out because it, it it's it's fascinating the fact that you, you're starting to see this shift. Uh, and Leslie, i would be very interested in your, your your thoughts on this. But you're starting to see a shift of of from cash to uh, electronic means of payments. You're then starting to see the impact of uh, those kind of uh, merchant fees, which might be hidden in the past. But now, they become so, uh, you know, such a challenge on uh, razor thin margins. How is that huge behavior shift from a, you know, a massively cash oriented society to a more digital society, let's say? I'm fascinated on how that plays out.
5: I I think this is a really, really tricky one. I mean, the, the regulators have done something with really good intentions, but the human stories that are coming out are amazing. I mean, at the end of the day, you, people need petrol and they're used to paying cash and they're used to receiving cash and suddenly there are charges and there is no cash and there's all sorts of stuff going on. There's people dying. There's all sorts of implications that are coming through. It's... It's going to be a really interesting year in India. I, I, I don't see the deadline being actually the 13th of January. I think things will change again. <laughs> we really struggle with merchant payments in, in general in these emerging markets alternative payment schemes because people are used to handing over cash, proximity payment cash to cash, and it feels like cash is free. Obviously, if you work in the sector, you know this is not the truth. But on the ground, that's the way it feels. And it's really it's not a solved problem. the whole business model around merchant payments where the industry is used to cash. it's it's a really unsolved problem.
2: Yeah, it's I'm sorry too, but this is a from a business perspective, it's a huge miscalculation on banks' part, right and and the, and the card networks part because it, to your point, India's a cash economy and Modi's cash crunch, you know crisis, has gotten people to try card payments, gotten them to try electronic payments, you know, from a from a business perspective, you want to let that run for quite a while, right? And and get people to see the convenience mm-hmm. and the safety of of paying electronically. The the last thing you know I would have done was hey let's try to make some money on this, right? It was just just very tone-deaf yeah, move.
5: Absolutely. And I, I think that there are new new things afoot as well I mean there's there's new payments bank licenses that have been issued in India there is the uh, payTMs in the space that are coming in taking a massive s- growth um, trajectory because of this putting big p- full page adverts in the press. the awareness is changing massively around digital and and it's short-sighted of the banks to not recognize that there are challengers that are going to come and be able to play and, and play quite differently from from, 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 from their system.
4: So the government-backed, is it Adar app, which is the app that
5: they're trying to launch around? Adar is part of the KYC um, uh, new national identity kind of systems. There's lots of tech being put in play in India over the last couple of years that will start to show some dividends in the next few years. They've got something called the India Stack, which looks a lot like some of our API-centric thinking. Um, Adar is an identity scheme. And there's also a national payments Switch effectively to to harmonise on payments between things. So, so the the visas and the mastercards of the world are not going to have the same impact, I would say, in India. Well,
0: that's really interesting because uh, Adar is something that's been heavily pushed by. Um both emphasis and Bill Gates, you know, so mm. there's a financial inclusion element to being able to do KYC. Uh, there was an interview on a new FT series podcast. The first one they did was you know interviews with the founders, and uh, it was Bill Gates and and the founder of emphasis talking about how Adar is is truly transformational for India because having a national identity scheme linked to a fingerprint for a billion people, you know, solves a problem that no other market can solve. But then there's you know there's this approach that says, okay, now we've kind of got that in place. So let's just rip cash out, which you know is kind of a little bit rapid. It's-
5: to, yeah, I mean the, the rationale for ripping the cash out was was the the fake banknotes, but but did all the pieces of the puzzle come together, or was it working in a silo? I, mm. I, I think there's there's an issue there that you know this. It was a bit quick but but they did it for a reason and they meant well, but it wasn't completely thought through Yeah, in terms you can of the see you can see the logic
0: of getting rid of fake banknotes mm. about moving people towards electronic money and all, all the challenges that come with moving to electronic money, but
5: they've got the same issues as as in Kenya, maybe in a slightly different way. But I mean the smartphone penetration isn't there yet. Um the telcos are only starting to set up payments banks and the like. We we tried to launch MPESA in India in two thousand and it i think and the regulations just made it really tricky it is launched it, it launched eventually but it's quite a different beast to what it is in kenya because of the regulations that are there and uh, people aren't ready they weren't ready for this 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 electronic money thing they had to learn about it very quickly and um, but they don't have smartphones 60% of the world are still not on the internet um it's a little bit different in india than in kenya but in the rural areas people aren't on grid and that means how do you charge a smartphone when you get one? You have to pay to charge your smartphone. You have to take it to a shop. Um, you may not be able to read. So are SMSs any use to you? Are smartphones any use to you? You've got to think about different user experiences. And are all these problems solved? Not in India, not yet. There's certainly really good strides happening, but it's not going to reach to the financial inclusion sector for sure.
3: That's, That's quite interesting. In, in, I was really surprised by the move of the Indian government towards getting rid of high denomination or high denomination notes and what they're doing to go cashless. It's admirable, but the nation isn't ready for it. I mean, 95 percent of payments are made in cash. And as you yeah. just mentioned, most people don't have smartphones or even a phone. You know, I can't remember the latest numbers I've seen, but it's something like 65 percent of Indians in rural areas do not have access to a telephone. So yeah. to expect them to suddenly be cashless, is, it seems stupid.
0: Yeah, and no wonder they're miffed per the headline. And uh, <laughs> speaking of, of headlines, let's let's move swiftly on to the next headline. Uh, another one for Aiden here from Banking Technology. There's a humanoid IRA to assist customers in HDFC bank branches. Aiden what's this about?
4: Yeah, we stay in India, and this time a, a slightly more technical advance. Uh, yeah, uh, HDFC have introduced uh, in-branch assistant robots uh, called IRA. Um, this story caught my eye. Because, well, I always like to see people trying robotic things in branches to make them seem relevant. Uh, and I used to work with someone called Ira, and I now uh, I'm wondering if they were a humanoid. Um, it's, uh, it's a robot, it works in branches, it wanders around. Um, I, I think it's a, a great PR move, um, but I'm not really sure of the value of it. I, um, it was built amusingly by a company called uh asimov robotics which uh, i don't know if it's just meant to be but i was uh, it reminded me that the, the laws of robotics uh the three laws a robot may not injure a human through an action allow uh, a human to come to harm so by that it probably can't allow it's not allowed to sell bad products a robot must obey orders given to it by human beings except where such orders would conflict with the first law so it that means it wouldn't work for an ethical banker's. So yeah, I think it could work, but um, I've not seen these schemes roll out well. Uh, City Union Bank in India earlier this year launched a robot called Lakshmi, um, which was backed by IBM's Watson. Uh, and in a dim and distant past, Santander had robots in their innovation center, uh, and Bradesco in Brazil had a robot called Link Two Three Seven. So these have been tried in the past, but. I'm not sure that automating the humans in branches is the thing that is the problem with branches, but they are just these stories are catnip to me because they're like,
0: who signed off these business cases to put crazy, in? Like the the appetite. The appetite for senior bankers to do gimmicky things in branches is seemingly endless, and yet the business case benefit to it is is always pretty much non-existent. So you got a question like, you know, you we know you don't know what to do with your branches, other than close them. So like, do something that's not stupid and gimmicky. Do something that's actually really going to help customers. And I think a lot of that is, you know, I, I point to the uh, yes, they're my former employee, but employer, but Barclays Digital Eagles I think is, is a really good program of work where you've got humans um, helping other humans, you've got people helping people be digitally engaged and, and kind of really understand this new technology, especially vulnerable and um, the elderly in, in communities who have gone to the bank branch for you know all of their lives and now suddenly they walk into the branch and all the humans do is push them to some kiosk to actually push them to the kiosk but very gently show them how to do it and also show them how to use Skype. That is something that you can really do and and it turns branches from a liability back into an asset and and really something that builds your brand. I think that's something that I'm surprised I haven't seen more people just rip off because it it seems to be really working for them. I don't know if you guys had thoughts on that. Well, I think it goes back to what we were just saying about India, which is there's this big assumption that everybody
3: wants to use digital and mobile apps and mobile wallets and that they trust the technology. And yet, if you go into the average bank branch, it's not like that at all. I mean, the average bank branch customer might be someone who um, is earning twenty to 30,000 pounds a year in a um, semi-skilled job who actually isn't that comfortable with dealing with machines, but wants to actually get advice from humans. And it kind of irritates me a little bit when we make this assumption, that everyone is you know white collar professional millennial um earning seventy five thousand plus a year most people aren't like that at all and exactly to your point simon that um if you provide a human interface that's supportive and en- encouraging and coaxing then that's what's going to work far better than trying to get a robot to do it
5: but actually there is something there is something in this robotization and um, possibly not in branches maybe not but there's an example in 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 Tanzania where rural farmers were given access to effectively what is a chatbot. It was an SMS-based chatbot, where they could ask freeform questions and the machine learning was able to give them back answers in a guided learning thing. It was it was it was fairly static. The the impact on that, on what happened, was actually, I think, quite phenomenal. And um, the, the guided learning was around how to how to save and how to use the digital savings product um, attached to MPESA. And, um, they saved five times more money. They asked for bigger loans and they paid back more money. That impact to that product and the, you know, the awareness and the training and all that kind of stuff to, to get that at scale digital services like robots that, that can talk in free language and have the farmer actually think who is arifu who is this person behind it when you read the blog it's like it's amazing mm-hmm. and i think there's a lot we can we, we will be able to do with 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 that kind of human kind of of interaction so the
0: ability for software mm. to understand language and to respond to you is becoming truly phenomenal and actually you know i was uh, it was richard brown on one of our previous episodes the cto of r3 who said you know kind of imagine those emails you get where where you can't reply to them if if instead of having a no reply there was actually a chat bot on the other side of it like those sorts of interactions that currently there's no human on the other side of but could really use it and could really benefit that i totally get from a customer service standpoint or from an education standpoint but sticking a physical robot in a branch no
5: i hadn't even seen the picture when uh, i first read the article to go wow yes it's also the reason
0: why in the 2017 predictions
3: nearly all of them have got chatbots as the you know this is the year of the chatbot because that definitely does make sense where you are having that natural language sort of interaction with a device but uh, yeah again when you actually go into a physical context you want to have a human there absolutely and i think
1: We've had a couple of conversations around this, Simon, earlier in in, an earlier podcast, too. It comes back to how do you translate the human experience that customer adoption and customer behavior responds to? And tech for tech's sake is not the solution. And I think that's part of the challenge and the hype of the industry is that there is an aspect of tech for tech. But if you really focus on what has most utility for an individual at a very, very personal level, we have to go back to basic fundamental needs. It's the Maslow hierarchy of finance. And are you getting that guided customer experience? Are you getting that um, bespoke advice? Are you getting what feels incredibly personal? Money's personal. Are you still getting that personal element in the interaction with your financial service provider? And if it comes through a gadget that looks like it's out of the Jetsons, does that actually, is that cool enough to replace the human touch? And that's- I the think there is
0: something. There's definitely something about mid-level executives enjoying the cool factor of a chatbot that's not helpful. And they may even use the word customer an awful lot. Like every third word they use is customer and customer experience. But actually really being painful and like just grueling with customer interviews and getting to the um, to the root of the customer problem and actually trying to kind of understand what job is this person trying to do like are they trying to run their farm better are they trying to save what problems do they face in trying to do that And, and getting into the psyche of your customer is something that i think a lot of people that pay lip service that and i'm pretty sure they mean well but they pay lip service to Customer problems and being customer centric. They say we want to be customer centric in that we're going to do a research once, but actually sitting with them day in, day out and trying to understand their job to be done, inviting them into your office—all of these things that you know um, Jason talks about quite a bit—I think become really, really, really crucial. And then you avoid the the tech for tech's sake. But anyway, um, being master of ceremonies once again, I've got to move us on to the next story. And the next story is a little bit on theme for the uh, roundtable that we'll have coming up in just a little while, but. I like this one in the Financial Tribune here. Iran's first open banking API has been launched. Now, it seems there's a meme catching on. Everybody wants an open API these days. But actually, this is launched. This is real. There are 12 bits of um, API functionality that you can apparently go and use, including making payments or transacting without technical knowledge. And apparently, it's in a totally safe environment. Uh, So I think it's interesting that we're seeing this coming from Iran. Market not typically known for its uh, its banking innovation. But I, I, what I really wanted to talk about amongst this group is, you know, kind of um, we're seeing stuff where regulation is pushing for APIs uh, here in Europe, and that seems to have kicked off a conversation around the rest of the world. Do we think that actually regulation is going to drive this, or is it just sparked a conversation and we're actually going to see more interesting things coming from other countries? I don't know if, if David, you had thoughts, or, or Leslie?
2: Yeah. So it's... it's um... I think it's going to be both. And and it's I'm i have the same fascination that you do uh, in, in kind of watching this unfold. You know, when you look at it historically, you know, banks have had very large, you know, very deep, very wide moats around their businesses. There's so much regulation, they're so protected that you know they haven't in, in many ways they, they haven't had to compete with outsiders at all. It's, it's a very protected business. And, and you know, therefore, they haven't done a lot of these things, they're very slow, late to digital, very late to APIs. And now you see regulators essentially shoving them in the back to get going with the program, right? And, and what's been really interesting is watching re- regulators from different countries where the regulators themselves recognize that the competitiveness of the f- financial services market in their country depends on this, right? So, you know, when the, when the uh, EU came out with, <coughs> excuse me, PSD2, uh, you know, the UK regulators, open bank working group and CMA base said, yeah, right, okay. Uh, London is, you know, premier financial capital of the world. Uh, we're gonna do, you know, effectively the same thing, but we're gonna do it uh, slightly broader and slightly faster. Right, and, and you see some of the th- same things happening uh, in Asia where Singapore has basically said, hey, you know, we uh, want to be the financial center of Asia, so we're going to, you know, start pushing and talking to the banks. You see Australia Australian uh, regulators doing some of the same things as well. So it, it sets up this really interesting dynamic where, you know, actually the movement gets started by regulators wanting to compete with other countries, Uh, in a digital way and trying to push their financial markets, their financial players, their banks to to do that.
1: A quick question for you, David, though, and it comes down to the market structure for Iran. It's a closed banking system for all intents and purposes. It's been embargoed by a number of different nations. There's such uh, stringent oversight into any transactions that are done in Iran or with Iranian banks, uh, especially from an AML KYC perspective closed more closed system encourage them to be more open and innovative and allow for that kind of let's open our black box and let let our businesses plug into them let's actually let other third parties plug into our systems is it is it maybe coming out of iran because it's such a closed and protected system that it allows or it forces it to do that
2: yeah, you know, I have I have no idea. That is a super interesting uh, idea. It may just be a point where, hey, we don't have a lot to lose, so let's just go for it. I, I've, right? got, some, I've got
3: some idea because I've been to Tehran several times, and basically, ah, tell us there there is a uh, quite um, innovative group of banks there that uh, work cohesively together, and in some ways, it's similar to Turkey in that um, you know Turkey's a neighbor, and in both markets, you see the central payments provider. Um, the, the ACH encouraging uh, collaboration on innovation um, and I, th- I can quite easily imagine that Iran wants to be seen as a fast-paced innovative economy having come out of being under the sanctions under as a before into a way in which they can show leadership so this is maybe the start of moving in that direction.
0: Hmm. Pretty interesting, Chris. I'm going to leave this one here because we've got to take a break for our sponsor. But when we come back, we'll be talking all about APIs with our guys. Let's be honest.
3: Most digital banking experiences just aren't that amazing. Learn how more than 180 banks worldwide, including Barclays, Deutsche Bank and BBVA, innovate faster with Strands as their trusted fintech partner. To find out more, visit strands.com today.
4: critical mass. That's what turns the smallest ventures into life-changing forces. Reach critical mass by joining Temenos Open Marketplace for fintechs, opening up access to 2,000 of the world's largest financial institutions. Don't just take our word for it. Temenos Marketplace has just won Reader's Choice Best Emerging Innovative Technology Product and Service at the 2016 Banking Technology Awards. Join Temenos now. We make the money
0: go round. So thank you very much to our sponsors, our fine, fine sponsors. We are back here with Leslie Ann Vaughan. Leslie, um, could you just um, give us a little bit more background in your experience in APIs, what you've done in these subjects?
5: I've sat both sides of this equation. So on, on the Impessa side, I have been the one trying to figure out what APIs we should be putting on the platform. And to be honest, you know, we're going back here to 2005. It was more of an integration than an open API play. It was in a telco environment. It's more soap than rest, all those kind of things. Um, But about three years ago, I spent a year at a startup. And before that, I was three years at at a different startup. And I was... In Kenya, trying to figure out how to connect to mobile money companies. In Ghana, trying to figure out how to connect to mobile money companies. So I've, I've felt the pain on the developer side as well. Um, <laughs> so I kind of feel like I can kind of be devil's advocate for either side, if, if you like. In, in, the devil in on both shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely.
0: So so David, our VP of Vertical Solutions at Apogee. A um, little bit more about uh, what it is you do at Apogee, David.
5: Yeah, the, the, the company
2: formerly known as Apogee, now known as Google. Ah, um, uh, yes, this a good one. <laughs> but yeah, so um, I actually joined uh, Apogee before it was Apogee uh, in 2007. So I spent almost not quite uh, a decade uh, working on uh, APIs. You know, I spent uh, quite a few years just helping getting uh, the commercial efforts of the company off the ground you know, some of our largest customers with telcos. So I spent a couple of years trying to help telcos understand APIs and get their API programs uh, started, which actually led me to live in London for a year, uh, working with the European uh, telcos and API programs. And and now I'm, I'm back in the States, I'm, I'm back in California, um, you know, working with financial services companies because uh, we've, we've launched a, a banking accelerator uh, to help banks adopt APIs faster uh, and, and some new security products I'm also uh, leading the go-to-market for.
0: Very cool. And we've been joined. We've been joined by Aubrey Halls, the Senior Director of Product Marketing at Oracle. Aubrey, nice to have you with us. What is it you do?
6: so i am responsible for product marketing for uh, the digital banking solutions that oracle produces and in that space it gets back to our use and leverage of apis and how we're actually not only creating vertical apis in the banking space but how do we how do we make access and, uh, and apis available to our data services that we provide as well as kind of the overall governance of those and From a background perspective, I've been doing that for a while. Part of that was a software developer actually writing, creating, and actually using the APIs before I started to kind of go to the dark side and just talk about them
0: tremendously cool I've been hearing the word tremendous a lot lately I don't know where I might have picked that up from it's just uh, it's become a meme and I can't get it out of my system Uh, alrighty guys uh, talk to me a little bit I'm going to put the jar of candy in the middle of the table and I'm going to ask Leslie David and Aubrey to fight over this jar of candy does somebody want to describe what an API is because we throw this term around and I find a lot of people want to explain it to me who've been in banking for 30 years but everybody seems to have a different idea and and I want to get a really good feel for one an open API is and what a developer-friendly API is more specifically? Who, who wants to take a crack at that one?
2: I, I can take a stab at the, the layman's uh, answer for those uh, listeners who are not very technical. In, in very simple terms, an API is how one software program or piece of software talks to another software program or piece of software. If, if you think about your house, and we're getting to more of a an IT type view, right? When you think about your house, uh, there's wires running through the walls that carry electricity. You know, m- much <clears throat> much like you can imagine networks that carry uh, data. And you know, if if your significant other, your your wife or husband, wants to put uh, a lamp in a certain place, you just walk over the wall and there's a plug, and you just plug it in. You don't have to call an electrician. You don't have to have a big special wiring project or anything to effectively wire the lamp uh, into uh, the wiring inside the wall. You just plug it in. That, that plug, that receptacle is essentially like an API, right? Makes it very easy to plug the lamp in to move it around the room. Don't really need to call an electrician in, You know, have a big expensive project to do so. <laughs> yeah, in, in IT, you know, in the past, it's always been big, expensive projects to wire new things in, right? Those are big integration projects, expensive, take time, have to call in the specialists, you know, and what APIs have done, you know, and specifically RESTful web-based APIs, you know, with the associated tools around them, have made it very easy to plug in different software programs to tie in different things. And the, you know, one of the four, four programmers give a more technical explanation, but in very simple layman's terms, that's the way folks should
5: think about it.
0: I, I like that a lot, David. And I'm going to ask uh, Leslie Ann to play uh, metaphor tennis with you here. Like, do you, do you have one?
5: <laughs> so we, we have this metaphor that we use. Um, I work with, with CGAP, a group for assisting the poor, and we work in this API space trying to explain it to execs quite a bit. And and we use this analogy where an API can be thought of as a menu at a restaurant, so you're placing an order at a restaurant from the menu, which is like calling an API. And the food that comes to the table is the system's response to that API call. And it's almost you're, you're guaranteed. It's like a contract. You, you ask for eggs on toast and eggs on toast should come out.
0: <laughs> Unless you're in a crazy upside down world in which you get something you didn't want.
5: And, I, you, and you want it within a certain time frame, right? And all those kind of things. You're effectively putting the contract together. Um, but it's, like, it's a menu. It's public you can read it, you know what to expect.
0: Very cool. I, I like that one, Aubrey, Any more for any more? Anything to add?
6: Well, so I'll maybe give a financial services example. So I, you know I, I like to think of if you go back and, and uh, you know we're just out of the out of the shopping season where everyone it looks like in a lot of markets bought everything online, and so many people can go back and just access PayPal to pay their to do their checkout. I mean, effectively, PayPal is offering up an API to any one of those e-commerce players to allow that to go back and facilitate the checkout process quite simply. And uh, you know that's probably the last bit of coding I've done is actually embedding that into some some um, philanthropic kind of work that I've done. Is it just it's easy? You don't have to worry about how it works. I don't have to worry about how you capture capture those details, it's it's a service, an API that I'm just plugging in and, and taking advantage of. So it really starts to enable almost like this, these citizen developers, so I don't have to build everything. I can go back and pull things that already exist. That's,
5: okay, that's, with, that's the key uh, what, 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 what you're what, what you're saying there about it being easy and about citizen developers, that's where the difference is between some of the more intricate stuff we've done in the past with SOAP and and the new more modern REST-based APIs are very much focused at citizen developers and, and how do we make it actually as simple as possible.
0: So there's this thing about simplification. SOAP and REST sounds mm. like a really good um, sort of Sunday evening preparing <laughs> yeah. for a Monday. But like, what is the difference here? Like, is this simplicity thing the kind of key? Is this why we're talking about open APIs now?
5: So Some of the developers that I'm coming across, they, they're, they're not Cambridge educated. They're not doing computer science degrees. They are coming along and doing some web programming. They're familiar with URLs. They're familiar with the concepts. And I think that's why REST is trendy at the moment and it's sitting quite well. It's not that there's nothing wrong with SOAP. It's just that's where your citizen developers are, have a comfort zone.
0: Because if you make it super simple then you could make it so that anybody who can code HTML can do some basic stuff mm. with an API, but doing powerful things is a lot more. David, did you did you want to add to that?
2: Yeah, but it's 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 more than just SOAP and REST, right? It's <laughs> you know, it's the it's whole, whole model and philosophy behind it and the programming languages that are used in the developer community. I mean, it's, there's, a, there's a lot to unpack. There's a lot around it, right? I mean, mm. certainly when you just look at the technologies, you know, RESTful-based services, RESTful APIs, Yes, they're easier uh, than soap to understand and learn you know but a- along with that uh, you know internet companies or what we what we think of as digital natives have also you know built uh, self-service tooling and onboarding for those things right to make it uh, really easy you know there's uh, description languages to make it super simple you know, they've, they've built a uh, kind of try and buy, uh, you know, or, or free free to start, free to develop uh, models on top of them, you know, so, so there's a lot more than just picking a, a shape, you know, a technology absolutely. for your API, right? And, the, and even the, the part data, part data that's returned, right? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, and I was just saying the, same, the so, data that's so returned is now modern modern programming as well, right? Uh, you know, where it's yeah. returning JSON instead of big, heavy XML, uh, in the world of mobile that's super important so there's a confluence of factors
0: is there something about the the api itself is just the tip of the iceberg and mm. actually everything you put around that yeah. is where the skill is right so anybody could go make a restful api if they've if they've buffed themselves in soap before yeah. but the, there's, uh, there's
5: build it and they will come right yeah yeah absolutely. <laughs> not a, yeah that's that's the key right to open api's and have a business model that will actually get some traction, you've got to do a whole ton more in that awareness space, in the education space, in the meeting people where they are and pricing it in a way that actually you're not turning them off developers are going to try things they're going to want it something for nothing how do you get them hooked in that's that's the key if you want to monetize in this and have developers pay for your services
0: i'm all for more World references by the way but um speaking of getting um, developers hooked in how are we getting um how are we getting banks hooked in and why gellum talk to me a little bit about why we think um banks are getting interested in this now is there a psychology thing here is this just the emperor's new clothes or are there real opportunities here
1: Well, I I am of the perspective that there's opportunity and it comes down to what I call unconscious banking or unconscious experience where there's a, one doesn't have to think about how am I going to pay at the point of sale? How am I going to uh, take the steps to make this transaction? But instead be in an app. I mean, I, I was on eBay just earlier today and I love the fact that the API for PayPal just allows me to click and pay. I don't have to think about logging on to something else and verifying my information, double-checking the credit card, you know, it, it, it becomes instant gratification. And I think that's the the change in the psychology of acquisition. And it's also the change in the psychology of money movement. So API allows that in the sense that third-party providers or the payment services director specifically, where you've got a payment service provider versus an account service provider, it allows that conversation to happen. The customer doesn't have to know about it. Um, they simply experience the end uh, activity as being unconscious. It's a, it's just one more click. It's a, it's a single click. It's not seven. And I think we're moving towards that, especially with um, Amazon Go as an example, that kind of experience. So, does API banking actually mean it's it's less physical steps and less physical activity for a customer to access and move their money and acquire? And how does the bank provide that? So I do think there's a business model in the sense that you're looking at. A customer satisfaction and experience angle it's also kind of bringing every bit of information that anybody would need to make a transaction in a single spot and there are these easy plugins that allow people who do or create a solution that makes it so super easy to actually give that to the customer via a traditional banking channel and I do think there is that massive risk of moving Uh, the banks into the dumb pipe territory, (laughs) becoming the telco. Uh, But there's an advantage for banks to actually being that white label service where they become the stop and shop for everything that a customer needs to make a transaction, make a purchase, move money, and they still remain that institution of trust. But now we've got all the tech that allows those customers to unconsciously experience that trusted money movement. I mean, that's... Unconscious banking is what I call it, but uh, yeah, um,
0: I like banking. it. I, I've never, I never. I've never consciously, unconsciously banked before, but I, I think that's quite an interesting idea. And you, you talked a little bit there about, you mentioned PSD2 and you mentioned really, I think, like what's the what's the thing that prevents banks from becoming telcos and just disintermediated and and away from their customers. And I, and I think there's something really in that because PSD2, as we know, is the, the regulation coming from Europe. And then also we've got the Competition Markets Authority in the UK that has sparked a lot of interest in Europe, but also around the world in this concept of open banking and open apis and you know there are plenty of banks in the US and around the world embracing these open api's but you know talk to me about the business case here are banks just uh, turkeys voting for Thanksgiving or Christmas depending where you are in the world
1: yeah I, I i actually I mean I I have opinions they're they're ill-informed opinions but I think the people on the front line I mean I You know, Aubrey, as you're talking to banks about doing this, and especially in the states where there isn't a a regulatory incentive to do it, there's there's only a market incentive. Um, The business case, in my mind, is actually remaining relevant, and it's not turning into a dumb pipe. And even though you have to open up your architecture to allow third parties in, the incentive is that you still remain in the end customer's eyes, the institution that provides that. And when you're, you still remain the trusted source of of you know, money protection, movement, etc. And the business case is that you're really actually becoming the only source or the first place that a customer would go to, irrespective of them being on the corporate investment or consumer side. And it it matters about market relevancy. It doesn't necessarily matter, you know, that you've opened up your systems. It's that you still remain in perceived as. as that institution. And I also think it it makes a big difference in terms of the end customer experience. If you can give them the service that they want, I mean, banking is about product and service, primarily service though. And if you can actually enable that service experience, that's the business case. It is improving the, the, the service itself. Instead of asking again, the customer to do 25 steps to make one transaction, it's a one click button and that service has increased and that that quality of service actually exists and it's reducing complexity for the end consumer
6: well correct and i would actually so so the interesting thought is i think kind of beyond just kind of as we talked a little about whether the amazon go or or paypal how do i go back and and add kind of this this short-term uh point of purchase financing or leasing as a part of that checkout to go back and enable those merchants to go back and facilitate that customer checking out with more goods so and I think you get back your, your point is they're not done pipes when the, the, the first movers that open up these APIs and go back and expose them through these channels start to give their customers more choice for ways to go back and activate that. I mean, we're seeing the same thing on the corporate side, which says, you know, the banks are starting to figure out how do they open up to the corporates to make it easier for them to go back and shorten that whole onboarding cycle. Well, the way you do that is, is via API, so you can kind of get out of this, kind of passing back and forth all these documents and allow those to be more an online API sort of call that you will be able to do several things that will benefit the corporates because it'll be a much shorter time to onboard. For the, for the banks, it actually is a lot shorter time to revenue because they're able to actually get them onboarded and start to deliver those services it will actually impact their ability to go back and generate revenue.
1: Well, and I think that speaks yeah. to standardizing experiences, right? It's a standardization of process that allows you to scale it. And if you can pre-populate that by making a single call and you've reduced the amount of paperwork, it's a green effort, but it's a time effort. It does shorten the sales cycle for both sides. And Correct. And that, I mean, that's crucial. You want to, you want to talk about revenue drivers. Shorten my sales cycle. I will pay you immediately. Isn't that the whole point? I think yeah. it's, it. But I mean, it also does facilitate a cross sell and upsell opportunity when you do think about the point of sale lending. I mean, that's that cracks open alt lending in an entirely different way, and you can still make a cut on that transaction even if it's an alt lender. If you're a bank providing that particular service as a partnership, I mean, it does open up different channels for revenue, and I think that's where the most incentive is, is being really creative about what else can we do is, and I the value add term drives me bananas. But where do we actually provide value in that experience? Because it is a service experience. If we can do that, using somebody else's tech that makes it super easy, the customers are going to pay for that end experience. And they're going to pay for the value of that service. I want to know if I can buy something immediately. I want to know that I don't have to fill out 25 pages of paperwork. I want to be able to say I get my line of credit as a small business really quickly and that I go through all my KYC really quickly. That, there, I will pay for that experience and that ease. And I think that's what API banking actually does. It's, it's the ease that we pay for. And someone else yeah. is taking care of the hard should, crunch.
2: Yeah, I think, I think we should go back to the original question, right? Uh, I like to simplify this because we've, we've ripped across a, a whole lot of topics uh, in, in the last couple of minutes. Fundamentally, you know, into in you know, most most bankers I talk to will understand that uh, you know, consumers are moving to mobile. All of the connected mobile apps that you use on your phone talk via APIs to get their data. So mm. you know, when you check the weather, uh, you know, that's an API call from the weather app on your phone to some system uh, to get the weather data. Right? Searching for a restaurant in, Most of those things, uh, for any of the really good app experiences, all those uh, native apps, they all talk over APIs. So, you know, bankers should be very interested in APIs because it enables digital experience. Right? And and it doesn't matter whether it's, you know, the consumer retail digital experience. You know, it could be the in-branch digital experience. You know, some, some of the banks that we're working with, you know, it's also the private banker digital experience. So your own employees having uh, great digital experiences that can pull information from different systems so that when, you know, they're sitting in front of uh, a high net worth client uh, in the, in the branch and they've got their iPad app, you know, we've got some retailers that do this. They, they, they call it client telling. They can pull all that information in, know everything about the, about, you know, that customer and, you know, sell to them and help them better. Right. So there's, there's kind of, one, one, one level of activity from a bank's perspective that says, look, the world is moving digital, the world is moving mobile, and we need to get much better at APIs. And in fact, many banks might already be using some APIs uh, for their mobile experience. So that is that is just the start. That is just the start. And there's a whole other level to APIs that you've seen the internet, Natives, uh, digital natives, been using for years. You know, which is looking at APIs um, as a distribution method. You know, essentially, a bank could almost uh, look look at the APIs. Uh, you know, as as another channel, right? They've got uh, branches. They've they've got uh, ATMs. They've got websites. They you know are playing around with trying to get mobile banking correctly. And you can say and i also have apis and in fact the apis can really underpin all the rest of
0: I was going to say David I was going to I was going to take real issue with it being just another channel because I think it's much more powerful than that it's it's kind of the thing underneath all of the channels and also like you can kind of give access to it I mean at 11fs we've done work with a number of clients explaining APIs and and I think the channel thing can be kind of confusing it maybe it's maybe it's a nice gateway drug to understanding APIs and, and I guess for some people it is but I find it's actually it's underneath the channel and actually you let somebody else build their own channel that's kind of the the point You let any developer build their own channel. You just provide them with the Lego bricks. I mean, Leslie, why should banks care about APIs? And we hear a lot about security. Why? Why do you think that is?
5: I I think we we have two crutches. We always fall back on. Is it is is security an issue? Is consumer protection an issue? It's easy to go to those defaults as we can't think about this till we figured that out. Mm -hmm. Um, So. It's it's always the default answer, and and that, to be honest, I've been guilty of it too. Mm-hmm. I, I I have sat in Vodafone Group listening to my Safaricom team tell me we must show the name of the customer before we actually do the transaction because da da da. da. But I'm going, but 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 consumer protection. You you can't do that da da da. What about all these things? And they convinced me, and they've done it. And actually, there's there's lot other ways to control things. Um, you use your data, you get a bit more clever, but actually the benefits outweighed the negatives there around that security, potential data protection flaw and all the rest of it. Um, and sometimes we do need to listen to our, to our end users and go, well, yes, it may be less secure, but what are the risks? And tackle it piecemeal by piecemeal. It's 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 a hard problem though, because once there's been a breach, you are going to then start to batten down the hatches and, and and get away. So it's a hard it's a hard puzzle, but we have to get to a place where we can experiment to actually figure out if we live in a cemented overhaul, we will learn nothing. Um, we have to be aware of our issue, our our, our potential security flaws or our Privacy issues and tackle them head on, and learn things. Lean in if you
1: like. Leslie, that that uh, so is it a straw? Is security just a straw man argument to avoid the conversation of maybe more complex API structure within an organization, or is the industry as a whole is it just a, an excuse to to delay? I I, is, I certainly well,
5: I, I've been the police woman man. Um, and went, absolutely not. And then they find workarounds, right? And they do it anyway. And then you realize, you know, without me doing it properly at the back end, they've figured out a way to do it with a different database and kind of hook things in in front and all the rest of it. They've done their own experiments and they've they've prototyped in their own way. And it's actually shown me, do you know what? If there are workarounds, if there are ways to screen script, if there are ways to do this, that, and the other, then why not put a proper API in place and do proper experimentation with proper consent mechanisms? So I've gone on that journey. I think it's, it's a journey that we, that, that culturally it's quite hard. I'm sure for banks to do, I've worked with the corporates, but I've not worked inside a, inside a bank trying to tackle these challenges. I imagine it's quite actually, cultural.
2: Yeah, Sorry. I actually think it's uh, just fear of the unknown, right? Mm-hmm. APIs have been out for more than a decade. Um, you know, one of the top three reasons that companies uh, buy Apigee technology is for security. A lot of the technical uh, things have been solved, right? It's they're absolutely positively solvable problems and incredibly large organizations like Google, Amazon, and others have been running entire businesses on APIs for a very long time. So I actually, I think the security things are red herring. Mm. There's much more around Not understanding the power of APIs, and you know we haven't even talked about platform business models yet. That probably leads people to have that pause and say, "Hey, well, wait a minute. I'm not sure I understand this. Therefore, uh, I'm not going to do it."
6: Yeah, and I I would, David, just to piggyback on what you said. I think I think you're absolutely right. I think so. I think I think there's been huge technology companies in California that are just running businesses and killing it. With APIs, and I think that that this is where the banks need really need to really. I guess just not the banks, but I think there's other industries that need to wake up and look at that. I think what's one of the things that's encouraging that I that I saw that we put here in the, in our in our uh, outline was something that I saw uh, from earlier this week where we had the new CEO of Wells Fargo talking about the number one digital initiative for the bank is all around APIs and the ability to go back and open up APIs. And I think part of what has to happen is is that the top leadership levels of these banks need to really start to understand and get it. And I think some of them are starting to, because I think that will go back and help shape the culture inside of these organizations, because I think so many people in the middle of these organizations, I love the comment earlier, someone says, you know, they have, they're customer centric, they have to say the customer word every 10 times. But does that really mean they believe it? I think these executives need to really see where financial services are going. And the ability to go back and open this up and exp- allows them to go back and, and get better, uh, better portability of these APIs, not only to support the channels they deliver today, but also all these other new channels. And I think you're absolutely right. David's right with Apigee and Google. Oracle's in the same space. They have products to go back and solve those technology challenges around how do you secure them how do you manage the access? But it's getting that that management buy-in that says this is where we have to go and we have to do it.
5: So, and that's it, quite a mindset shift, right? That that's quite a mindset shift from a from a current business which is very B two C end user to a platform business. And um, there was an uh, there was an article recently. Jeff Bezos had an idea, and six days later it was implemented. That's only possible because they're an yeah. API first company with a platform yeah. business, and our our current banks and my and my mobile money providers, DFS providers, and um, they're not platform businesses and they don't have the staff and the mentality and the culture yet. And and there's, there's quite a game changing needed to be done to get there. Yeah, Sorry, But you're right, it's, it's almost,
2: done. you can almost think of it as 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 three levels, right? So we talked about digital experience, right? And the fact that most digital experiences these days and mobile apps are all built on APIs. Um, you know, we talked about APIs as a as a distribution channel right for for your services and and then you just brought up kind of the the third the third level w- which frankly is really really dangerous for companies which is platform based business models platform based business models you know especially today built on APIs are deadly because usually in a in a specific market vertical or a segment there's one or two that win you know and we, we've seen this just just as a you know, we, we've seen this in cloud, right? So to your point, uh, you know, Bezos put, put out the edict, like it was 2001 or 2002, and said, hey, everything's gonna be built on APIs. All, all of uh, AWS, uh, you know, what all of cloud is, is compute storage and networking and all those services built on a set of APIs, right? It's programmable, programmable data center. And you're seeing Amazon run away with that market, Microsoft and Google, you know, probably like a second and a third, and really that is that is it over time it's going to coalesce. Um, you know, there's like one mapping provider and then a couple others that are going to make it. And you see this in in vertical after vertical after vertical. I don't expect banking to be any different. When somebody does figure out what the banking platform is, they will own it. There'll be that's one winner and a couple like a second and a third place and that's it.
0: David I think that's so key I think that, that we've talked for a long time about who's going to be the Amazon of banking but actually that headline behind that what we actually mean is who's going to be the platform bank and I don't know that anybody's grasped that but it seems that I don't know that anybody is that but it seems like you know as, as Aubrey pointed out Wells Fargo and others um, are starting to to get that and at 11FS we've been talking to clients more and more and it seems like people are starting to get it so if you're in a bank and you're just talking about how am I going to meet um, how am I going to meet PSD2 or how am I going to meet regular regulation, you're kind of missing the opportunity to become the platform bank. But the good news is we have three experts here with us who you can reach out to and find out more from. So, Lesley-Ann, if people want to know how to become a platform business, how do they get in touch with you?
5: Um, I'm, I'm, my name is so unique, you'll find me in Google. You know, Vaughan. LinkedIn, all the rest of it is the easiest way to find me.
0: <laughs> oh, what about you, David?
2: Yeah, apogee.com or David at Apogee. I'm also on Twitter.
0: Fantastic. And Aubrey?
6: Yeah. So Aubrey Hawes, um, my name is pretty unique as well, but Aubrey Hawes at Oracle.com or Oracle.com slash digital banking.
0: Well, listen, guys, this has been an amazing show. Thank you so much for joining us. And I want to thank uh, Geller and Aiden once again for joining us. Chris did already have to disappear. Geller, Aiden, thank you.
1: Thank you.
0: Yep. We will have to have you guys back on to talk just about the platform business piece because that is such an interesting subject in and of itself. When we've done workshops on that subject alone for, for two days at 11FS, but it, all that's left for me to do is thank everyone for listening. Remember, if you like what you heard, subscribe to our podcast. We're available now on SoundCloud, iTunes, and every other platform you can think of. Reviewers on all of those platforms. We, we love those reviews. That's all for now. Thank you.